0: Welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford Centre for the Study of the United States and its place in the world, in which we try to understand America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. In 1960, the United States was in many ways at the height of its post-war global power. Its immense economic strength as yet unchallenged by Japan or West Germany – racial tensions not yet having exploded into global prominence. This was the era of the liberal consensus, a concept much critiqued by historians, but still capturing an important truth about the pressure in those years to coalesce around a feel-good story about American democratic freedoms delivering a prosperous, expanding middle class at home and peace and security against communist oppression abroad. That September... 1960, the US was in the midst of a presidential contest between two young candidates, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, more different in temperament than they were in policy terms. Both were Cold War warriors. And then, wading in to shake up the party, came America's great Cold War nemesis, Fidel Castro, the leader of the new Cuban Revolution. Wearing combat fatigues and flying on a Soviet jet, Castro travelled to the belly of the beast, to New York City, to attend the General Assembly of the United Nations. It was a pivotal moment in the Cold War, with a host of newly independent former British and French colonies taking their seats in the UN for the first time, and a rising non-aligned movement led by Prime Minister Nehru of India and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana and others. The balance of power in a polarised world was at stake. Here's Castro talking to the American press on arrival. We will vote always with justice. We will vote always against colonialism. We will vote always against discrimination. racial. We will we'll vote again, against, against uh, imperialist exploitation of the people. We will be always with justice. That is our blood. What happened next is an amazing story and one that's been told in detail by Simon Hall, Professor of History at the University of Leeds. And Simon Hall joins me now. Simon, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast.
1: No, thanks for having me. uh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: So... Simon let's just let's just set this up a little bit give us give us the scene september 1960 fidel castro the leader of this cuban revolution which has shaken the world attracted the world's attention famously just 90 miles off the coast of florida the united states gearing up for a presidential election and castro decides to go to new york why does he do that first of all and second just kind of give us the picture when he arrives in new york what's the reaction
1: yeah so i mean i think he goes to new york primarily because he sees it as a kind of extraordinary opportunity to kind of make his mark on the world stage because of the 15th general assembly is 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 happening and basically almost anybody who's anybody is going to this meeting it's a great diplomatic set piece of the post-war uh Period. So you have, you know, um, Eisenhower is going, uh, Macmillan is going, Khrushchev, NASA, Nehru, um, and um, Really, everybody who's who's uh, who's a kind of a big deal in the kind of um, uh, on the global stage is going to be there. And so uh, Castro sees it as an opportunity to kind of mix it with the with the big boys, I suppose, and to uh, make his own claims about his own importance as, as a leader, and also to publicise, draw attention to the. Uh, the Cuban Revolution—it's both its achievements, but also its um, its place within a broader anti-imperial uh, movement. So he's going there to sort of um, burnish his own sort of credentials, I suppose. But also he sees it as a great opportunity to make mischief and to cause trouble for the American government, which he which he succeeds which he su- he succeeds in doing when when he, he when he he touches down at um, Idlewild Airport, which is modern-day JFK. There are several thousand supporters, mainly Cuban Americans, uh, who've gathered there to kind of cheer him. And despite the fact that the weather is is really f- sort of foul and 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 uh, it's pouring with rain, um, and as he as his motorcade heads heads uh, into Manhattan, there are there are supporters on the on the on the uh, lining the the freeway to to sort of cheer. And uh, when he arrives at the Shelburne Hotel in Midtown, there's a big crowd there as well. So he's greeted quite raucously but it's by a very select group of people it's a big contrast he visited new york uh, in the spring of 1959 as part of a, a wider tour of the united states and and canada and there he'd drawn huge crowds of all different types of, of americans this one a year or so later his popularity has dwindled among many white americans but it's still very he's still very popular among african americans cuban americans and other sort of um uh, America, uh, uh, people in in New York of of, of Latin American um, origin or or descent.
0: This is before the Kennedy administration, and we you know people have heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and people may have heard of the the Bay of Pigs invasion. This is before all of that, of course. So so take us back to this moment. What did the Cuban Revolution seem to represent? What why were some people, albeit people of Latin American extraction in the main and African Americans. Why were some people excited by Castro? And why had the majority of white Americans turned against the Cuban revolution, if they'd ever been sympathetic to it in the first place?
1: Yeah, so when the revolution first takes place, when Castro seizes power, it does capture the imagination of a lot of people in the United States and and elsewhere. Partly because of the sort of the aesthetic of it or the style of it, it's, it, it sort of seems... As though sort of a, a group of kind of you know very young, quite kind of uh, bohemian-looking rebels have just kind of swept down from the mountains and kicked out a terrible uh, dictator. Um, and it's also at that point, uh, very early on, it's seen as as not a, a communist revolution. It's seen as a, a kind of liberal revolution, a nationalist revolution, something that can command quite a lot of of, of, of support politically in, in the in the United States and. Um, And when Castro goes to um, the United States in in April 1959, you know, thousands of people turn up at Harvard University where he gives a talk. And um, Arthur Schlesinger, the historian who's later an advisor to Kennedy, sort of writes about this as though the undergraduates sort of see him as a sort of a hipster figure who's just sort of, you know, thrown out a government of wicked old men. So there's a kind of a big generational aspect to his, his appeal.
0: I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? I mean, he was. He, he we, we look at him now, and he looks like a kind of hipster figure with his with his beard. And he was
1: how old was he in 1960? I think he's about 34. I think so. Yeah, he was. He was. He was young. Um, certainly a lot younger than, than Eisenhower, who's approaching mm. 70, um, uh, and a decade or so younger than than John F. Kennedy, who's who's running for the presidency. Um, and his appeal among African Americans, in particular, is centered on the fact that within weeks of taking power. Um, he uh, his government passes a series of laws that outlaw segregation in private clubs, hotels, on beaches, swimming pools, and so on, and, and c- commits the, the revolutionary government to um, ending racial discrimination. Um, and uh, so, this is a, a big deal, as you said. It, Cuba is just ninety miles off the coast of the segregated South, and his his willingness to overturn the the kind of racial order in Cuba seemingly overnight, is, is seen as a real breath of fresh air. So that explains why he retains his appeal among African-Americans. He's less popular with other groups because, well, for a number of reasons. One is um, there's a big sort of PR disaster really by the Cuban government because they they have a series of sort of show trials for uh, senior Batista regime figures who are then convicted and shot. And this goes down quite badly in the United States. You sort of see it as a retributive justice and talk about a kind of Cuban bloodbath. The government also becomes increasingly, at least in the view of the Americans, authoritarian. So it kind of bears down on the free press. It, um, it restricts academic freedom. It restricts the freedom of the judiciary. So it seems to be coming, taking a sort of authoritarian turn. And most important for the Americans, it starts to nationalize or in, otherwise interfere with American-owned businesses. Those uh, policies go down very badly in, in Washington, and the disagreements become increasingly bad-tempered, ill-tempered. And so there is a sort of a war of words between Cuba and uh, the United States, which means that by spring, summer, early autumn of 1960, uh, relations between the two are pretty pretty poor.
0: You noted that at at this point in September 1960, it still wasn't clear that Castro had chosen sides in the Cold War. It still wasn't clear that he was Establishing a communist regime in Cuba. So, can you talk a little bit about how Castro saw himself as part of this kind of mix of world leaders? I mean, I note that you know you you talk in your book about how he he met up with um, Nehru, for example, the the Indian leader. How was he trying to position himself in global yeah. political terms?
1: Yeah, it's that's a, that's a good it's a good question, and it's it's, it's a bit tricky to know for sure because. Um, sort of two things are going on really in 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 New York with Fidel. So one of the things he's doing is meeting with these these big characters with Nehru, with Massa, with Nkrumah, and is positioning seems to be positioning Cuba uh, alongside those uh, those leaders and those and those countries and making making Cuba and Latin America part of this broader non-aligned movement uh, a movement which is defining itself in terms of anti-colonial nationalism. And against um, "quote unquote" in, in Western imperialism, so he's doing that, and he wants to be seen. He wants to be photographed with these leaders. He wants to be, he wants to meet with them. Uh, he wants to build uh, bridges and, and alliances and find common ground with them. And a year or so after this, Cuba does join, um, uh, becomes a, a member of, of, of what's formed as the Non-Aligned movements, an official uh, official group of, of, of these nations. But at the same time, he's doing that. He's also hobnobbing. With Khrushchev and becoming increasingly, you know, they get they seem to get on really well. Uh, Fidel and and uh, Khrushchev, and this is coming at a moment when Cuba is uh, is becoming much closer to the Soviet Union. Uh, it's turning to the Soviet Union for economic help as America is becoming more hostile. So there's two things are going on. There's a bit of a sense that, that Fidel is wanting to do to do both. He's wanting a strong economic and and military alliance potentially with the Soviet Union, looking to the future for that. But also he wants Cuba to be identified with the kind of global south with the anti-imperial movement with the non-aligned bloc, so he's trying to do both in a way
0: strikes me and this is a lot from reading your book i mean kristoff and, and uh castro are kind of you you could sort of see why they would either get on really well or they would really hate each other because they're both larger than live characters they're both extremely eccentric they're both showmen the interesting thing about about Khrushchev, and I guess about the Soviet Union more more generally at this time, but it seems to bear particularly on Khrushchev, is that in relation to the non aligned the, the non aligned movement, as you say, define themselves around anti colonial struggles, and so it's these newly independent Post-colonial nations, who are the at the at the heart of it, the the leaders of this movement, and there is something about the Soviet Union at this point is kind of would kind of like a little bit of that themselves, wouldn't they? I mean, if there is anti-imperialism going around, will they see themselves as an anti-imperial power too? Don't they?
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, there is so from that point of view, there isn't really a, there isn't necessarily a contradiction because unlike Stalin, who viewed non-communist movements for national liberation as um, as class enemies, he views these anti-colonial nationalist movements, as potential allies, supporters. He's willing to spend lots of, of money, lots of, uh, uh, spend, you know, um, huge amounts of Soviet um, resources on development projects across Africa and Asia um, to try to, you know, win alliances, win support, build up um, influence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Khrushchev sees himself as, and his he views the Soviet Union and the Soviet project as uh, anti-imperialist.
0: Yeah, sure. I want to move on to talk about Castro in New York. He goes to a, a midtown Manhattan hotel, first of all, and basically gets fed up there, doesn't think they're being treated as well as they should be by the management and the staff. There's this moment when he drops off to Dag Hammarskjöld in the United Nations headquarters and demands that the Cuban delegation be allowed to sleep on sofas. Uh, inside the UN building. And when that doesn't seem to come off, he moves up to Harlem. Your book is called 10 Days in Harlem. So tell us about that move, which is the kind of signature move. It's the the reason really why the uh, Castro visit to New York in September 1960 is most remembered. He moves up to Harlem. And in doing so, he puts himself at the heart of the historic African-American community in New York City.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary moment. Um, And, you know, it's not just that he goes to Harlem, but he goes to the Hotel Teresa, which is this huge landmark building right in the heart of of Harlem. It's just around the corner from um, uh, Louis Michaud's famous um, African nationalist bookstore. Um, it's, it's, It's right around the corner from where all the street orators gather. So he's right in the very heart of Harlem, at the very center of the kind of African-American political, um, world, I suppose. And, and then his very first guest is Malcolm X. Just, you know, he's barely had time to check in when Malcolm X turns up and they, they get on really well. They have, there's some wonderful photos of them chatting in, in, um, in Fidel's, um, hotel suite, both sort of perched on the edge of the bed because there isn't any real furniture to accommodate them. And, um, You know, this just sends out uh, a message, really, that that is that puts Fidel and Cuba very firmly on the side of African Americans, on the side of the African American freedom struggle, and on the side of the sort of quote unquote oppressed people of of Harlem. And and then, because he spends most of his time in in Harlem, you have this extraordinary thing where you have all these leaders who make their own pilgrimage up to the Teresa to meet with him there. And this is also kind of extraordinary because it's an area which is usually kept hidden from the outside world. Uh, when Khrushchev was was in um, the United States in 1959, he did a big, a hugely successful tour of the United States in 1959 as part of a, a moment in the Cold War where it looked as though superpower tensions were, were easing a bit. He spent time in New York and he was insistent that he wanted to go to Harlem. He wanted to go to Harlem. And eventually his American mind is allowing him to go to Harlem, but they drive him through Harlem in the early hours of the morning on the way to the airport as he's flying back home. When there's nobody around. So it's an area where the American government is very keen that people don't see it. And they don't want people to see it because it's an international embarrassment in terms of its racial situation. So it's, it's endemic poverty, it's uh, crumbling buildings, there's slum laws, there's problems with crime, uh, problems with, with, uh, with uh, disease like asthma and tuberculosis, there's sort of endemic police corruption and brutality, police brutality. And so by going to Harlem, Fidel doesn't just draw attention to the kind of vibrancy of the African-American freedom struggle in 1960, but he also draws attention to all of the problems that African-Americans who live in Harlem face are faced with every day, you know, segregation, both formal and informal, poorly funded, inadequate schools, police brutality, all, all of this kind of stuff. And this runs totally against the uh, the kind of story that the American government is telling to itself, to its citizens and to the world about Race relations. So what what the State Department is saying is, you know, yes, there is a race problem. It's confined mostly to the South for historic reasons because of the legacy of, of slavery. But look, it's in the process of being gradually worked through in a peaceful, democratic manner, in in keeping with our constitutional form of government, through Supreme Court rulings, carefully worked out federal initiatives and and new legislation. And Fidel's visit to Harlem draws the world's attention to the problem of racism and segregation in the in the North, in America's most important, most famous city, and in a city which is which kind of encapsulates post-war American liberalism. I mean, its mayor, um, Robert Wagner, is um, an archetypal post-war liberal. He supports trade unions, he supports liberal reform efforts, he supports welfare spending. He's a he's a liberal Democrat, and uh, yeah, this. Really important section of his own city is blighted by all kinds of racial discrimination. Uh, so the idea that that it's just a sort of a localized problem which is being worked through and solved peacefully and democratically is is exposed as something of a of a fiction. So it, yeah, it, it's some, um, and and of course this goes down really well in Harlem. They think this is a great hoot that Fidel has turned up and everyone's looking, and the State Department officials are kind of tearing their hair out at at what they do about it. And 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 it matters because. Nineteen sixty is um a year when I know more than a dozen newly independent African nations are joining the United Nations. Many of their diplomats and senior government officials are in New York exactly at this time. And their allegiances, their loyalties, their sympathies are up for are up for grabs in the kind of Cold War contest. So it it's 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 a diplomatic what well, we would call it today a challenge, wouldn't we? It's a challenge for the State Department, it's a challenge for the Eisenhower administration. Yeah.
0: It, it seems to me your book as if Eisenhower doesn't really rise to that challenge very well, isn't there? There's is a moment where the State Department is saying, uh, look, Mr. President, you've got to go and have dinner and have lunch with these newly independent, uh, the, the leaders of these newly independent African countries. And he's kind of, no, 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 I'll see them all together. I can't be bothered to go and see them all individually. So there's a, is there a sense in which Eisenhower, I mean, he's on his way out, I guess he's at the very end of his second term, but he just doesn't quite rise to the challenge here, does he?
1: no he definitely doesn't and, and you get the sense that the state there there are people in the state department who are who who really understand that this is a key moment that these new independent countries are there and first impressions matter and it's really worth spending time and effort and turning on the charm to try to make sure that those relations get off to a good start and eisenhower just doesn't he doesn't get it he doesn't rise to the challenge he he's emotionally unable really to relate to it i think he's suspicious of a lot of these new leaders um he totally doesn't uh, doesn't get uh, neutralism he doesn't get the non-aligned business he thinks it's you know he says things like you know he understands why you might want to be neutral between two power two power blocks but when it become when it is a question of of being free or not free or a question of being right or wrong how can you be neutral on those questions so he sees it through a very sort of particular lens a cold war uh, anti-communist lens, and actually, you know, w- when he does meet African leaders one-on-one, it often goes very badly. So, in a way, it's maybe better that he doesn't spend much time. He he meets some um, the, the one leader that he, he really likes, and then he spends time with his um, the leader of newly independent the Togolese Republic, a guy called um, I think it's Sylvanus Olympio, and he really likes this guy, and he writes about how you know it's very telling. He says, oh, he has a sense of humour, which you don't often find in many of these African leaders uh which you think well, yeah okay mm. maybe they've got reasons to be serious when they're meeting the president of the united states and stuff but then that meeting seems to go quite you know on the surface goes very well but but um sylvanus is saying look we're a really an in independent country and we have to share our ambassador from the united states with cameroon which is miles away so yeah mm. it's not even a neighboring country and you know there's some talk about you know lack of resources and not enough money to open a separate embassy and then um eisenhower chips in with like well you know Maybe the ambassador we could have an ambassador and instead of building them a house they could sleep in a tent with, like everybody else does in your country, yes. and it's just like yeah 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 super he just awkward. doesn't uh, yeah super awkward, and then they also offend Nkrumah because Nkrumah has a meeting with with Eisenhower and he doesn't really want to talk about the issues he just talks about his own military service in World War Two and then the next day Nkrumah gives a speech at the UN where he's very critical of. Um, of the policy towards the Congo and, and, believes that African nations should take the lead in solving the problem in the Congo, but also makes a big thing about keeping the cold war out of Africa. Uh, he thinks that, uh, the, you know, the cold war should be kept out of Africa and Christian Herta, the secretary of state interprets this as uh, as Nkrumah having sort of basically gone communist, which is exacerbated by the fact that as Nkrumah steps down from the Rostrum, Khrushchev makes a big deal of getting up and shaking, shaking him by the hand. And, um, I mean, he hasn't given a speech which is communist at all, but they just can't, they sort of interpret any criticism yeah. of the West as, mm. as dangerous. Mm. So the Islam administration is very flat-footed um, mm. when it comes to this, this question of the newly independent mm. African countries. So the whole sort of story of US policy and African decolonization in, in, in the 15th General Assembly is one of tinier, being a bit tiniered, um not rising to the challenge, not really getting the moment, I don't think, mm. and ceding the initiative ultimately
0: the united states is in the description in your book seems to come across to me as being deeply uncomfortable with the revolutionary struggles which have led to the independence of formerly colonized powers in the third world uh, is is that is that fair or or does the kind of anti-imperial tradition in american politics find any outlet in
1: in 1960 yeah it's, in, it's interesting because, and it's also ironic actually because many of these um anti-colonial struggles and the leaders of them had taken great inspiration from um the atlantic charter um signed by uh, roosevelt and and ironically a winston winston churchill mm. um was in 1941 i think wasn't it so um um you know which are talked about the rights of to self to made a big thing about the right to self-determination. I think the Eisenhower administration, um, it's, so it, it, it supports decolonization because it believes that, um, empire sort of formal empires has, has had its day, but it doesn't, but it also wants it to proceed in a very sort of orderly and careful way. And it wants the, it obviously it obviously also wants those newly independent countries to be anti-communist. And so it, it it's, um, it finds it difficult to navigate that, and I think that um, f- particularly for the Eisenhower administration, when it has to make a choice between offending um, a key European power, one of its key European allies like Britain, or supporting uh, an anti colonial movement in in Africa it, it always leans towards or pretty much always leans towards supporting the the Western powers. The exception there is sort of Suez, which is a bit, but that's a bit more complicated, I think, but yeah it it's uncom- it is uncomfortable with the with the prospect that these new countries are going to be radical or that they're going to pose some sort of threat to America's own interests. Fidel gives this very long, ex- extremely long speech at the UN General Assembly. It lasts for four and a half hours, which is still a record. Thankfully still a record. It hasn't been broken yet. But one of the most interesting and and most um uh I think um insightful things he says in that speech is that, you know, it's really easy to 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 raise a flag, to come up with a new coat of arms, to sing a national national anthem, um, and to declare independence. Uh, But unless you have economic sovereignty, unless you have the ability to craft your own economic um, policies, um, you don't really have true independence. And the United States is very resistant to any attempt by these newly independent countries to to exercise real economic independence and uh, to do things which seem to go against America's own interests. In terms of whether there's a sort of a, an outlet for the anti-imperialist um, sentiment, it seems to come in, in what is the emerging new new left in the United States, both the academic new left, which is people like William Appleman Williams writing about a longer tradition of American empire or American expansionism or American imperialism.
0: In a critical way.
1: In a critical way, yeah, which is filtering down to a, a sort of new generation of college students and, and student activists. They're sympathetic to and they're inspired by that view of of looking at America's history and at the same time inspired by uh, revolutionaries like the revolution in Cuba or in Algeria or or elsewhere. so that's where it, that's where that sentiment comes.
0: the Cuban Revolution, the economic independence that Castro was seeking was very much economic independence at the expense of American business interests. so the pre-revolutionary Cuba under the Batista regime. At least, this is the the image I have. Was Havana was a playground for rich Americans and bu- American business interests, um, dominated in the pre-revolutionary Cuban economy, right? So, so it, it in a way, whatever may or may not have been the impulse behind the different independence movements across uh, Africa and Asia, in the case of Cuba. Although that wasn't a straightforward um, anti-colonial <clears throat> struggle because Cuba wasn't part of a formal empire before the Cuban Revolution, it, in an informal sense, it had been part of an American economic empire. So it was it was the closest that you came, perhaps, in the post-war era to an anti-American colonial struggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, certainly the way that um, Fidel and his... Um and his fellow revolutionaries would would have it. it. Cuba was run as a sort of economic colony of the United States. It was run for the benefit of American business interests, not for the benefit of the Cuban uh, people. Um, and uh, it was a playground for the for the for the rich and for the mob as well, uh, for the mafia. Um, and you know, Fidel had grown up in, a, in in an area of Cuba which was dominated by the big American sugar companies. And although his own background was quite privileged, his father was was quite wealthy and owned a, a sugar. Um, cane farm, and they lived in quite a grand house. Um, you know, the the the, the kids uh, that uh, Castro went to school with, you know, were the sons and the daughters of of sugar cane workers who earned a, a, a basically a, a pittance. And at the same time, you know, American employees of these companies lived in these very fancy gated communities with sort of lavish facilities and a life of sort of luxury, really. So Castro is always keen to sort of make make mischief. So when he um. Uh, when he uh, expropriates american property uh, and nationalizes american companies he offers compensation in in cuban government bonds uh, but the value of those bonds uh, the value of the property is is determined by the amount that the the property was declared for tax purposes uh, and because the whole system was notoriously corrupt it was all under declared so they're not getting their full worth back but you know for for the, that's that's part of the point really he's making a point there as well about the fact that cuba Uh, had been run, yeah, as a a de facto economic colony of the United States. I think it was, you know, something like a billion uh, dollars worth of investments in Cuba. So there was a lot for Americans to lose. And so really any new Cuban government that really wanted to do something about that was going to run into difficulties because it was going to antagonize business interests, was going to cause tensions with the United States.
0: Finally, Simon, I mean, what's the, what are the long-term, what were the um, consequences of all this? I mean, it's a great story that you tell in your book, 10 Days in Harlem. I mean, it's a really rich and colourful story, and it brings together all these strands of, of geopolitics and racial politics in the United States and everything else and all these world leaders together. After Castro left, what then? What's the long-term consequence of this episode?
1: There are a few things. One is his his trip to New York, sort of seals in the minds of the Eisenhower administration that there is absolutely no way that they can tolerate him. So they're, you know, they've already begun to think about a way to replace the the, the regime in uh, in Havana. And um, in the weeks after Fidel flies back, they they work up those plans more. They 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 make them more sort of robust and more and more ambitious. And that's the origins of what becomes the Bay of Pigs invasion in the spring of nineteen sixty one under. Eisenhower's uh, successor, John Kennedy. I think that the meetings with the the meetings with Khrushchev are really important because they they get on really well, and it signals that this is going to be a really important strategic new strategic alliance, which is important in itself in terms of how the Cold War is going to play out over the next the next few years. But also, I think symbolically, is showing how the focus of the Cold War is shifting away from Europe and towards the countries of the global of the global South, to Latin America, to Africa, uh, to Asia. I think it's also, when Fidel arrives back in Havana, a lot of um, commentators, particularly the both the British ambassador and the American ambassador there, sort of see in him a sort of a, a renewed zeal to make the Cuban revolution not just a success for Cuba, but a sort of a genuinely world historic event. And I think Fidel's reputation as a as a global revolutionary is is definitely... Improved, strengthened uh, hugely by this by this trip, and and helps to instill in him a, a a real determination to 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 put Cuba at the heart of the global anti-imperialist movements over the coming decade. And it also makes him uh, even more of a folk hero to this sort of emerging new left and and student counterculture. Mm. There's this great reception they have at the at the ballroom at the Teresa for him on the the twenty second of of September. And you know the, anyone who's you know a kind of a cultural bigwig, a literary bigwig, uh, actors—all these people are there, sort of fawning over him, desperate to have their photograph taken with him, asking for his autograph. It's a it's a really early sign of what later comes to be known as sort of radical uh, chic. And within the student movement in the 1960s, within the New Left, this sort of fating of of revolutionary figures from Latin America, from from Africa, from from Asia, uh, becomes a really defining characteristic of that of that movement and I think that Fidel's trip to New York and specifically his stay in Harlem is an important part of sort of crafting that that left wing politics that that is so central to the story of the of the rest of the decade
0: is there any way the Americans could have played it differently and more effectively
1: yeah I love these counterfactuals they're they're really um they're really fun to think about i've i mean it's hard to see how um the situation could have been really been recovered by September of 1960. But th- there's a great contrast in um, the way that Eisenhower behaves and the way that um, Harold Macmillan, the British prime minister, behaves. So Eisenhower is determined not to be seen anywhere near Fidel Castro, you know, in the General Assembly Hall or anywhere else. He's not going to meet him. Um, he just derives him in private as a, as a madman, uh, sort of a dangerous figure. Macmillan, when he arrives in New York, one of the first things he does when he arrives in the General Assembly Hall is to stride across to NASA and to sort of shake him warmly by the hand and engage in some nice uh, small talk and sort of turn on the charm. And of course, NASA is someone who is, who has, you know, just four years before humiliated Britain over the Suez crisis. And uh, Macmillan was, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Eden's government, was one of the leading hawks at that time calling for Britain to intervene to Take back the Suez Canal and to overthrow Nasser, he was seen as a sort of a Mussolini-type figure by uh, uh, Sir Anthony Eden. And yet, you know, Macmillan has the the flexibility, the imagination, the willingness to put all that to one side and and turn on the charm. And you sort of think, you know, it probably was never going to, to happen. But if Eisenhower uh, or Christian Herter for that matter had gone over
0: to Castro, being that Christian Herter being the secretary, of state.
1: yeah, if if one of them had gone uh, had done that, you know what. what what would have happened what what might that have have done would it have made any any difference when I read about that that uh, Macmillan's uh, sort of gesture it did make me think you know it'd be great to sort of rewind history a bit and just play that mm. scene but have Eisenhower you know make some sort of symbolic gesture and and try to uh, mm. try to disrupt the situation in a different way maybe
0: mm. um, he does uh, i I will say i mean Macmillan comes across very well in your book simon um Eisenhower comes across really quite badly as a kind of rather grumpy out of touch uh not just not really getting what's going on uh, you know he, he it's it's not a great portrait of presidential leadership
1: no it's not his finest hour he's he's grumpy I don't think he's in the best of health um he's irritable there's an extraordinary um uh, recollection that his um, his secretary Anne Whitman has um she's overhears eisenhower um uh, or, or Eisenhower comments to her after I think it's after Khrushchev's speech, at the first speech at the General Assembly, which is very belligerent, and he's, he says something along the lines of, "You know, I wish there was nothing holding me back from pressing the button and sending all our nuclear mass- missiles over to the Soviet Union," uh, which is a sort of extraordinary yeah. thing, yeah. extraordinary thing to say, really. But yeah, he comes across as kind of yeah, he's he's run out of steam, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's let's be kind. To be that's kind, the
0: pl- that's say. the plan. <laughs> yeah, the he's run out of steam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Simon, thank you so much. It's a, it's a great book and it's a great story. And as, as I think this conversation has, has shown, it, it's, it's one of those great little stories that opens up in so many different uh, directions. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great. Simon Hall's book is called 10 Days in Harlem. In the end, as Simon explained, Castro's visit was so provoking to Eisenhower precisely because he knew which buttons to press, which places to go, which people to see, to puncture the image of America the administration wanted to project. In the context of Cold War politics, American leaders wanted more than ever to be the last best hope of Earth And as ever, that desire made the supposed redeemer nation especially vulnerable to the exposure of its contradictions, hypocrisies, and mundanely familiar, unexceptional social problems. You've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. I'm Adam Smith, and if you've enjoyed this, please like us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and make it easy for others to find us. Goodbye.